Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. Today I'm speaking with Alex Feinberg on human nature and performance. Alex spent time in some of the most competitive industries, going from professional baseball to hedge funds to Google and DeFi before launching his own diet, fitness, and strategy consultancy. We talked about his insights on human nature gleaned from success in business and sports, the importance of maintaining an internal locus of control, investigating conspiracy in the shadow world, breaking out of systems that condition learned helplessness, the importance of training with closed feedback loops, the pathologies of large institutions, the political implications of entrepreneurship, and the tight relationship between strength and freedom. Agora Politics is dedicated to upgrading our outdated theories of politics. Doing so requires honest and forthright engagement with not only academics, entrepreneurs, and intellectuals, but luminaries of all types who are tuning into the zeitgeist and attempting to synthesize stories of the past with knowledge of the present and visions of the future. With that being said, I give you Alex Feinberg. Hello and welcome to the Agora Politics Podcast. This is your host, Alex Mershak. With me today is Alex Feinberg. Alex Feinberg is a master of sorts of a number of different disciplines. He's worked in Google. He's worked for different high-powered uh, financial firms. He's also uh, running a, uh, a very successful uh, fitness and dieting consultancy on his own, but I will let the man himself uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, who he is. Alex, if you would, please introduce yourself to the listeners. Yeah, thanks, Alex. So, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area in, uh, you know, the 90s. And like many kids in my generation, I grew up wanting to be a professional athlete. Uh, I was very good with math at a young age, five, six years old. Um, in my head, I would do three by three uh, number addition. Apparently, I taught myself multiplication around the age of six. Um, numbers made a lot of sense to me growing up, but so did sports. And I sort of looked at sports as a vehicle to get me out of a, a middle-class or middle-class existence, um, and really make something of myself. And so I didn't even realize that I was, you know, quote unquote smart when I was younger. I just thought that I was somewhat athletic and I'd apply a lot of effort towards making the most out of myself athletically. Uh, that manifested itself in uh, a scholarship offer from Vanderbilt university to play baseball there. Um, I thought it'd be really interesting to go to Vanderbilt growing up in California, but having the opportunity to live in the South, play in the Southeastern Conference. And it was that experience that really cued me into a lot of the primal psychology nature of man. You know, growing up in California, uh, left-leaning and liberal at the time, um, I kind of, you know, thought that most people would take logic-based approaches to understanding their surroundings. But uh, removing myself from that environment and spending a lot of time in, you know, athletic uh, competition-focused environments forced me to understand that humans, by and large, are primal in our emotions and, and what we want and, and how we um, define our goals and pursue them. Uh, I ended up getting drafted, played professionally for the Rockies for a couple of years, but you know, wasn't really going to project to be a major league baseball player, saw the writing on the wall, ended up connecting with a hedge fund manager who was a fan of my college baseball team when I was 23. Uh, realized that he had a ton of experience on Wall Street, had made a fortune himself. And after speaking with him for five or 10 hours, he convinced me to go and work for him at his Hong Kong-based hedge fund. Um, at the time, you know, he's a very odd guy compared to traditional hedge fund managers. He saw the 2008 crisis coming. He only lost 9% in 2008 and then made a bunch in 2009, um, believing that the Fed was going to reflate the markets. And uh, what I ended up doing for him um, perhaps not surprisingly for the contrarian that he is and was, is I actually researched conspiracy theories for about a year and a half. So I was researching hmm. the foundation of the Federal Reserve, origins of war, uh, a lot of the shadow power structures that exist in our society or we believe exist in our society. And I used what I learned to decide that the Fed was going to keep interest rates low indefinitely. This was back in 2010. Um, and so by 2011, I thought that Silicon Valley was going to do really well in a subsidized interest rate environment. 
that a lot of companies wouldn't have the requirement to be profitable in order to raise capital at higher valuations, given the zero interest rate policy that we were certain the Fed was going to pursue based on how it's structured and who controls the decision-making process. And so I, uh, I thought Google was a decent place to start my tech career, but I also layered in the, uh, you know, my observations about primal psychology. You know, I kept training through my early 20s because I realized as a, as a primal baseball player that people who were in, in shape and spoke well just got preferential treatment at almost every corner and every turn of life. And I wanted that because I didn't know exactly how I was going to navigate my career and I wanted every advantage I could possibly have. So I did a few different roles at Google. I did sales, I did corporate um, strategy, and I did product partnerships. Um, and then in 2017, a couple of things happened. Number one, I had been making tremendous progress in my fitness routine, um, not dieting in any conventional sense. So never doing caloric restriction or overt caloric restriction. And I was actually training less and getting better results from it. And I thought to myself back in 2017, if there's one way I could impact the world, it's teaching them that fat loss doesn't have to be hard. Fat loss is actually easier if you do it right than if you do it wrong. And most people do it wrong because I was doing it wrong for about 13 years. Mm -hmm. And also in 2017, the crypto markets picked up. Um, I you know, reassessed my, uh, my initial thoughts on the market. You know, I was in Coinbase's office in 2013, meeting with the VP of business development. I was familiar with Austrian economics. I understood the, the downsides of fiat currencies. I just hadn't invested in Bitcoin until 2017. Got in in 2017, decided that I wanted to pivot professionally into the crypto space and uh, ended up joining a crypto exchange called OKCoin to lead partnerships, uh, business development for them out of their US office. But I kept uh, creating content around fitness because I, I knew that there was value there. I thought that there was uh, something unique that I could offer to the broader world. And uh, fast forward about 24 months, uh, you know, my follower count went from non-existent at the time I took that job to over 26,000 now. And I'm actually able to live off of the revenue that my fitness business is producing for me uh, because of how happy people are with the results they're getting from switching to my system. Mm. So um, that's my full-time focus at the moment, but a lot of people are also interested in business takes that I have because, you know, I have been doing expert network consulting for the last five years, you know, talking to people about Google, talking to people about the blockchain market that pays a lot higher rates than fitness does. And, you know, I think over the last couple of months, people are starting to realize that the perspective that I have on fitness is actually, is actually came second. It's my perspective on life preceded my perspective on fitness and my ability to organize chaos sensibly in my mind and describe it tangibly to people who might not understand what's going on um, is leaps and bounds ahead of many other people who they might uh, consume on a more regular basis. And so I'm finding that a lot of my followers are becoming interested in doing more mentorship coaching, um, cognitive framework um, improvements, and uh, you know, really getting into the mental side of training and life. So that's what I'm helping put out there right now. Wow, yeah, that's a that's a great journey. It sounds to me like a lot of what you have been focusing on throughout all of this is really just how do you get the most out of performance? You, know, yes. you seem to be a very performance based person in terms of what you think about and the metrics that you're trying to measure against. Yes. Um, what keyed you in on the importance of fitness uh, and and diet? You know, you said that you you are working on uh, something that's sort of unconventional in terms of what people generally prescribe for yeah. what they can eat and how to stay in shape. Yeah. Whether that's for fat loss. Uh, in my case, I've never been overweight, so I would be more interested in gaining. Sure. But uh, what exactly did you discover in the literature that was unsound to you logically? Uh, well, the, the literature is all logical. The problem is it doesn't work. And so my, um, you know, my eureka moment came in 2014 when I was about 10% body fat, 19% body fat at the time. And I was running six miles a morning, five days a week, followed by 45 minutes of lifting, 40 minutes of lifting, something like that. And I kind of thought like, well, this is just my steady state. Like I'm in good shape, not in, you know, cover model shape, but I didn't think that I could be. And I'm doing the most that I can practically do to get the results that I want. Well, I started working with a guy named Woods, who is a triathlete, went to Stanford, and he was actually almost as strong as me too. But he was a lot better at me uh, than I was at uh, conditioning distance running. He run multiple miles 
at a low six minute pace sequentially without stopping. And I thought, well, that's pretty cool. Like if Woods can do that and he's almost as strong as me, I want to be able to run as fast as Woods can run. So I ended up cutting my mileage down, but making it faster. And from the literature, from what the literature, literature says, that's not supposed to work for fat loss because your heart rate's higher. And when your heart rate's higher, you're burning more glycogen, true, um, at a higher heart rate. So less of the fuel that your body's tapping into is from fat cells and you're burning fewer calories. So like under no circumstances would I think that this would lead to fat loss. But what ended up happening is like three weeks later, I lost fat that I didn't even realize I had. And I was low enough body fat where I could notice a drop from 10% to say 8%. I'm like, huh, that's interesting. Let me just keep running with this and like see how fast I can get with my miles. And so I kept doing that through 2015, kept doing that through 2016. I, I ultimately lost about uh, 5% body fat in about 25 months between uh, 2014 and 2016, uh, kind of applying similar principles that weren't supposed to work towards what I was doing with my running, running less, but faster. And at the same time, I had never created my diet to be a fat loss diet. I created my diet to be a delicious food diet. But in the process, I thought, you know, applying the behavioral economics frameworks that I, that I view for performance, I thought, well, if there are certain ingredients in my food that don't make it taste better, but are inhibitive of my gains, I should probably look to remove those because they're not adding any value and they're just subtracting from what my max potential could be. So I reassessed my diet. Um, I started to you know, swap out some ingredients. I started to rebalance my macro portions to, to favor meat more than carbs. Um, so they tasted just as good, but it's just like Thai goes to lean meat. If, you're not, if you don't know what you're gonna eat, just eat lean meat. And, you know, through, through a process of minor changes year over year, month over month, um, I kept getting better results. And I found out that I didn't have to diet in any conventional sense to get a body that everybody wants. So I thought, wow, okay. I, you know, I was just trying to be the best version of me without applying more effort than I was willing to apply on a consistent basis. And lo and behold, it works. So let me try to share it with people. Yeah, definitely. And, you know, I always see your posts on Facebook where you're, you know, showing people the delicious things that you're, I'm sorry, not on Facebook, on Twitter, where yeah. you're showing people all the delicious things that you're making. You know, you talk about eating pizza, uh, you know, three times a month and uh, oh, more than that. Yeah. Bacon yeah. and uh, all kinds of things that, uh, that are extremely savory. And uh, a lot of people would, you know, perceive as being somewhat dangerous to their, to their fitness goals. And it's so, because people have the, a misconception about what pizza is, what a burger is, what fries are, right? The reason why pizza is not good for you is because if you're buying pizza from Domino's, that pizza sauce probably has a little bit of sugar in it, definitely has seed oils in it, uh, it has GMO bread, it has GMO dairy. So if you're, if you're insensitive to either of those, it's not going to digest as well. And there's insufficient protein on there. They'll throw a couple of pepperonis, maybe some sausage, but like from a macronutrient balance standpoint, it's suboptimal for maximizing your muscular gain and minimizing fat gain. Mm -hmm. And so rather than eat Domino's pizza, 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 I'm like, well, pizza is just bread, cheese, sauce, and toppings. All of my meals have more protein or, or the protein takes up a larger portion of the geographic space on my plate than the carbs do. What about pizza makes it so impossible to do that? Nothing. Let me just make sure I'm using a thin crust and load it up with protein. Same thing's true with like fried chicken. What exactly is bad about fried chicken? There's chicken, which is considered healthy. There's breadcrumbs, which can be healthy. And there's the oil that you fry it in. All right, well, the oil that you fry it in, if it's an omega-6 rich oil that a Popeyes will use or a churches will use or a KFC will use, that's not gonna be great for you. But if you're, if you're frying it in a coconut oil or real olive oil, that's an entirely different food profile. Tell me what's so different about fried chicken that's breadcrumbs, chicken, and olive oil. Why, why does it become a different product than if you just had chicken pasta, which is or chicken, like a chicken salad, which is considered like a quote unquote healthy meal? I didn't think there was much of a difference. And so I just acted like there was none. And the results in my physique suggest that there really isn't one. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I mean, People can see the results for themselves <laughs> right now. Um, that being said, Alex, I want to transition a little bit uh, in away from uh, 
of the of the diet and fitness. Although sure. maybe we might revisit that uh, later and uh, move towards business. So you said mm-hmm. that you know before you were doing all this uh, all of these fitness stuff and before you were teaching or coaching on that. Uh, really, you found your first success in kind of heterodox thinking around business, around sure. networking. Yeah. Uh, what lessons uh, do you think can relate from business to politics? Because people often speak about business in uh, war analogies, right? You'll mm-hmm. see CEOs reading books like Sun Tzu's Art of War mm-hmm. or, um, you know, the Book of uh, Five Rings, mm-hmm. uh, etc., uh, they'll even, you know, some of them even keep copies of uh, Machiavelli's Prince nearby. Um, for those of us who are uh, more on the sort of the political end of things, uh, we tend to think of things in terms of how can this be the this be useful to us? And it's become apparent to me, at least from your own testimonials, that your attitude towards business and as you talked about before, even uh, even before that, in terms of professional sports, <clears throat> has informed your views on politics. So what did you glean about human nature from, uh, from your business and uh, athletic experience? Yeah, there's a couple ways um, I can answer that. So I think from a starting point, in order to be successful in business, in order to be successful in sports and training, you need to have a very strong internal locus of control. You need to, be, you need to figure out, okay, what do I need to do to succeed and then do it? Okay, this is uh, more classically uh, uh, libertarian or right, right-leaning thinking than environmental-first approaches. So an environmental-first approach is saying, this activity is dangerous, 90% of the people who do it fail. Whereas internal focus of control thinking is, what do I need to do to be one of the 10% of people who succeed? And you'll notice that the people who succeed don't necessarily look at the fact that 90% of people who are in their shoes fail. They, they're not reading books about uh, you know, the statistics of success in a particular endeavor. They're looking at the people who've succeeded and trying to uh, replicate uh, where sensible the, the actions that they've taken. So, you know, that's, that's one area that sports has informed me, um, you know, about or, or predisposed me to, to have, you know, some degree of political leaning, but also uh, kind of understanding how group building, team building, propaganda works if you're if you're part of a highly functional sports team, you are exposed to propaganda because propaganda is necessary to build a strong military. It's necessary to build a strong team environment. It's necessary to build unity, to, to, to increase human bonds and make them resilient. So propaganda has a use case. But you can also see how in sports, certain people are able to get preferential treatment um, you know, based on, you know, primal qualities, they, go, they look good, they speak good, they, they speak in a certain tone, they perform a certain way. And then you start to realize that the world is not flat, not, a, not the same rules do not apply to everybody. Uh, there's one set of rules that applies to 95% of people, and then 5% of people are smart enough to figure out how to get a different set of rules applied to them. And once you realize that winners do not play by the same playbook as losers, and you, know, you start to realize like, what are the traits that allow people to transcend the rules that are applied and hold back most people? And then you realize that politicians do a lot of these things and they do them well, uh, and particularly the popular ones. And so you, you develop a very strong understanding of how propaganda works um, you know, if you simply pay attention to how ideas spread anywhere. And so I think a lot of this experience, just seeing how people can be manipulated in certain environments, how their emotions play a huge degree of uh, importance in how they respond, what they, what they think, what they want. Um, it, it's just a very, very uh, easily transferable learning set that helps understand politics today and yesterday. Certainly. And, uh, you know, one of the interesting things is that, too, you can get lots of information about uh, the way in which uh, people are sort of systematic in that they they take inputs and they give outputs, right? And so when you were talking about propaganda there, one of the way that I think about propaganda is I think about human beings really as receivers, right? And so if you think of your uh, your neurocircuitry, which runs throughout your whole body, uh, as something that gets stimulus from the environment, then all that propaganda is doing is it's figuring out a way to stimulate 
someone's nervous system in a way to get a certain kind of output out of them, whether that's behavior, whether that's speech, whatever it sure. may be. Mm -hmm. um, and so I like to sort of, that's one, one frame in which I, I tend to think about these things. I wanted to ask you a little bit about your experience uh, that you had under one of your mentors studying conspiracy, because conspiracy is a hot topic right now. I spoke to Joff Schollenberger uh, back in March <clears throat> Uh, about the uh, about conspiracy, about the proliferation of conspiracy throughout our society. Conspiracy actually used to be uh, a sort of an elite, uh, I guess, um, uh, obsession or 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 um, attachment. It, it it didn't used to be that uh, normal everyday people really thought too much about conspiracy and conspiracy theories. Now, of course, mm -hmm. there have always been conspiracies. Even the founding of the United States was itself a conspiracy. Sure. Um, but recently, there has been kind of a, a crackdown or an attempted crackdown on any kind of uh, not only conspiratorial thinking, but uh, any kind of suspicion of the forces at play that are yeah. kind of un the dark underbelly of that run our society. And so I wanted to ask you a little bit about what you learned from that research and how that informed your view on things, because it seems very similar to me to this uh, statement you just made about sort of a different set of rules uh, mm -hmm. for different kinds of people. Yeah, I mean, I think going back to learn, relearning about how World War I started was uh, very disturbing to me, and, but also transformative, where I knew from watching a BBC documentary called Century Itself, prior to working for um, my hedge fund boss, that um, propaganda or public relations as it was previously called, uh, came to the forefront around World War I. That's when Edward Bernays, Sig Sigmund Freud's nephew, came to the United States and brought the teachings of his uncle um, to the mainstream, you know, basically convincing the government that logic was not the best way to convince a society to invest lives and uh, resources to fighting a European war. Most Americans did not want to fight a European war. They thought that that was the war of the Europeans. Um, one thing I found out when I was researching all these conspiracies is that Wall Street bet very heavily on the Brits uh, in World War I. They expected it to be a rout. They did not think that Germany was going to be able to mount any sort of constructive offense against Britain. But um, the German Navy was able to nearly encircle the, uh, the island of England and the island of England did not have the capacity to produce enough food to uh, support the nourishment of its population. So they would have to surrender within a few weeks if they were not able to import goods from abroad. Now, if they had to surrender, that meant that they're not gonna pay their bond, war bonds if they owed Wall Street and Wall Street bet heavily on it, which meant Wall Street was gonna go bankrupt too if the UK had to surrender. And so, uh, what came out in congressional testimony is J.P. Morgan had uh, editors in the top 25 newspapers around the world on his payroll, right? You think about this and you're like, oh, it's really important for powerful people to control information. They funded all the elite universities. Rockefeller funded the University of Chicago. Um, railroad tycoons funded Stanford University, Vanderbilt University. Um, Carnegie Mellon was funded by the steel industry. So like all of these elite, elite schools, or many of the elite, elite schools, um, the curriculum was determined by industrialists, and so is the news. And so what ended up happening after JP Morgan realized that he was going to be screwed if the United States didn't send in support to help the UK, is we started beating the drum for war, talking about how it, uh, Europe was, Germany was making the world unsafe for democracy, because that played well with, you know, the tests that they did. And, and then all of a sudden, Woodrow Wilson, who ran for re-election in 2016 on a, on a peace platform, <clears throat> ends up uh, gaining popular support to fight in World War I. And J.P. Morgan, being politically well-connected, ended up getting all of his friends on the you know, war appropriations boards and rerouting tax revenue or government revenue into businesses that he owned. So he ended up making billions of dollars in the modern-day equivalent on World War I, um, when he was, you know, he started out in a very weak position, nearly losing, uh, you know, a, a bulk of his investments that he would have made in the, on the losing side, had he not secured the ability to have the resource, uh, the United States come back 
to save him and enrich him even further. Yeah, definitely. And uh, so, yeah, World War One is a good a good case uh, for the way in which the masses can be riled up to, you know, fight and really sacrifice for a cause when maybe the people pulling the strings from behind the scenes don't exactly have their best interests in mind. Um, And when you think about conspiratorial thinking today, I mean, I'm not going to ask you to shout out conspiracy theories here. Uh, This podcast is not really focused on those too much. That being said, uh, that certainly like, like for every, I I've discovered at least for every person that, that, that sort of uncovers something that they thought was true about society. And it turns out to be totally, totally wrong. They've been misinformed or outright lied to in some way Uh, that tends to cause a reaction. And that reaction often means that they lose, uh, they lose faith or they lose trust in a whole set of other beliefs that were related to that. Um, And so there's usually some kind of political identity crisis that comes along with this. Mm -hmm. For me, uh, the Trump election of 2016 really shattered a lot of the way that I viewed the world at the time. Oh, and okay. so there was a whole transformation that followed after that, where I was investigating my own, you know, political viewpoints and identity wow. and trying to recover from that, something that made sense. Not that um, many people did that. Yes. Yeah. Well, <laughs> most of them doubled down on their initial uh, incorrect beliefs. Yeah. Well, it was a painful process because all my friends, uh, all my friends and family are still sort of, you know, in that same place. They didn't really, uh, they didn't really critically, critically analyze that. Right. Yeah. Um, but for me, it was a, it was a transformative experience. Uh, and it's informed a lot of what I think about now. I think one of the things that, uh, people are, one of the things is that there are, there are so many people who are broken by Trump, whether, whether for or against (laughs) that, uh, here we are five years later, and it seems to me that the people that decided to take this as an opportunity to grow came out of it stronger and, and better and more informed. And the people who decided to spend four years, uh, frankly, crying about it, um, didn't really, you know, get much of anywhere. And now Biden mm-hmm. is, is in office and and they're acting like uh, like it's surprising that uh, that everything is falling apart. <laughs> if they admit that i don't know yeah well if they admit it right so there's still some cognitive dissonance uh that's uh that's percolating around what i wanted to ask you though is a little bit about sort of the the economy so you are uh obviously very uh economically informed you made some very intelligent economic decisions over the last uh last decade or so um and you mentioned uh cryptocurrency earlier mm-hmm. uh, you mentioned that you know you can get better rates if you train to to go work in there uh, mm-hmm. I, I may actually eventually be uh, doing some training to try to work on uh, on the Ethereum platform at some point, like learning Solidity is, is in my, uh, it's, it's on my backlog of, of sure. things to do. Um, that being said, one of the most fundamental aspects of cryptocurrency that is crucial to a lot of what we've been talking about with, return, with regard to, you know, pulling the wool over people's eyes and giving people false narratives is escaping from the U.S., uh, us uh dollar standard mm-hmm. and the you know rule by fiat that we're currently in in which our our currency is constantly being debased and devalued so uh, i wanted to ask you do you have opinions about the sort of um financialization or over financialization of our economy and you know a lot of the behavior that the fed is doing at the moment yeah. and also bitcoin as well yeah so you know one thing i realized when i was working at the hedge fund i was working at this might have even been like prior to me doing a ton of digging into into the research i always understood inflation as something that would take away from my savings even before i was cued in on fed conspiracies or anything like that i knew if inflation was at three percent and if my assets yielded four percent but i had to pay one and a half percent taxes then i was only growing by two and a half percent but inflation is 3%. So I'm actually getting a half percent poorer every year. So I understood this from a young age, right? It didn't take, I didn't have to get, I probably understood it when I was 16 or something like that. Maybe, maybe even earlier. Um, What happened when I was working at the hedge fund is I started taking a deeper dive into the data around economic growth and started to realize, you know, at the time, 2010, 2011, this is uh, right in the middle of Occupy Wall Street, uh, they're talking about how all of the economic gains have gone to the rich. 
And the narrative uh, that, the, that the economic right at the time was trying to construct is that everybody's getting better off. It's just that the rich people have gotten more better off than other people, but we're all getting better off. What are you complaining about? And that would be true if the data was right. But if you actually take a deeper look into the data, the data is not right. The government has a substantial vested interest in understating inflation because if inflation's at 5%, capital markets aren't going to want to lend money to a government at 3% because they're basically guaranteeing that they're going to lose 2% every year or more if they have to pay taxes on it. And so the government has a tremendous interest uh, if it wants to use debt to fund its expenditures to understate what the actual rate of inflation is, not just for, for those purposes, but a lot of the uh, fixed obligations that they have, like social security, are linked to cost of living adjustment calculators that depend on the Bureau of Labor Statistics to give an inflation number. And they say, oh, well, Alex, you know, it cost $2,000 a month for you to live last year, but inflation's at 3%, so we're gonna give you $2,060 per month. Well, they'd much rather give you $2,060 per month than $2,100 per month because it's cheaper to give you less. So there's going to be some political pressure to get that number lower. And if they can't get that number lower, one of the other benefits is they can talk about real economic growth. The economy is growing by 4% per year. It's like nobody knows how much the economy is growing. In order to, to say how much the economy is growing, you need to have an accurate calculator of inflation. And we know that that doesn't exist. And, and we know that the ones that they use can be gamed. And every politician and every salesman wants to give his customers, wants to give his constituency the idea that he's performing incredibly well. And I knew this from working in sales at Google, where no matter how the campaign's going, it's going well, right? Keep spending money, it's going well. Well, the same thing's true with people management. No matter how well or poorly I'm managing uh, a country, it's going well. Just give me the numbers to substantiate that. It's going well. Mm-hmm. And so what you realize if you, if you read you know, John Williams' shadow stats is that they continually uh, altered the way that they've calculated inflation to get that number lower. Uh, Eric Weinstein talks about how some Harvard economists would chuckle and brag about how they helped the U.S. government do this. But the long-term impact of it is it's not that the rich people got richer and everybody else kind of stayed the same or maybe got only a little bit wealthier. It's actually that the rich people got a little bit less richer and everybody else got poorer. And that's the reason why people are having trouble buying things that they need to buy in addition to poor financial planning. But you know, if the average American could support a family of four with a union job at General Motors in 1971, and now that guy's kids need to have two working adults to have a lower standard of living or maybe the same standard of living as their parents, that's called getting poorer. That's called being worse off. And you will not hear many politicians articulate that uh, either because they don't know it's true, they don't wanna know it's true or their constituency won't understand that it's true because they don't understand math well enough to conceive how you could possibly be making more dollars one year but be poorer at the same time. Yeah, definitely. And uh, one of the other things, too, that I found is interesting about the uh, the right. And, you know, I think they're right about this to a large extent, but it's not the entire picture is that they will often blame things like uh, like the decline of uh, of two parent households. Right. Mm-hmm. Or the uptick in, uh, you know, in, in marriage or I'm sorry, in children out of wedlock. You mm-hmm. know, and these kinds of sociological factors definitely contribute to it. But if you're ignoring these larger structural problems that, uh, you know, that are causing this, then fixing uh, fixing the institution of marriage, fixing, uh, you know, uh, the, the age at which people have children, these kinds of things might be good for those kids and they might lead to more stable families. But ultimately, you're not actually solving the real the real core problem here. Well, it's multifactorial. And so usually the problems that either party is going to point to um, include solutions that don't make them poorer, right? So um, putting blame on uh, altered family structures is factually correct. You know, a change in family structures will almost certainly lead to a change in criminality, a change in uh, income attain- or educational attainment, income attainment. That's not the only thing that's, get- that's causing it to go in that direction, right? Like neoliberal economics will impoverish a large portion of society and enrich a few. Um, now, 
one might ask, what's the alternative? I mean, and people look to the 50s and 60s, but that's not really a viable alternative. Like we can't just assume that the rest of the manufacturing bases around the world are bombed out after a war and we can have pricing advantages over our competitors like we had in the 50s and 60s. We can't replicate that absent a World War III that knocks out manufacturing bases around the world that compete with us. Okay, so what do we need to do? We need to make our economy more efficient and the process of making the economy more efficient will transfer more wealth to a smaller segment of society than the rest. But that doesn't mean that it, the, that amount of wealth needs to be transferred at the rate that it has to as few people as it has. So a lot of the issues with, with the right are the fact that they are not free market idealists either, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's more like uh, when they have power, they're fascists economically. They align with corporations, they bail out Wall Street, they bail out uh, auto manufacturers, they bail out their friends. When the left has power, they're communists who are also aligned with business. So it's just a different form of fascism depending on who's in control. And both sides will ally with the other most powerful entities in the US, which are typically corporations, to screw over everybody else. That's their mode of uh, power maintenance is aligning with people who will prop them up, convincing their constituency that they do represent them. But reality, they're just trying to not screw them over to the extent that they notice while they can still keep those who fund their campaigns happy. Yes. Uh, And one of the things that I think people don't talk about enough is the fact that these corporations are in competition with the government. Um, Mm -hmm. so, you know, there's a, there's a, uh, there's an evolutionary struggle going on. There's an ecology, uh, I, I don't like to refer to, uh, to market forces as, uh, you know, as the, um, the battle, the battle of ideas or Mm -hmm. the, the free market or anything like that, because in my mind, I view it all from a biological lens, right? So, which is great because I do too. Yeah. These, these entities are competing for power. Uh, they're, they're, sometimes they're working with the state, sometimes they're working against the state, but they're always antagonistic. Mm-hmm. Uh, and ultimately, you know, the government isn't itself much different from a corporation uh, in that it's it sort of has a life of its own. It's seeking to expand its its power. Yeah. And so individuals are also uh, part of that ecological uh, landscape and trying to carve out niches for themselves. So I wanted to ask you a little bit, uh, moving away from systemic problems and returning to the theme that you pointed to in the beginning of this conversation, which is maintaining a locus of control, how it is that an individual might respond to this kind of situation that we find ourselves in. Because of course, none of us, uh, you know, short of, you know, launching a giant political movement and, you know, spearheading it to the White House and taking over Congress and and really establishing almost totalitarian control over the state uh, is going to really deal with any of these structural problems. At most, we'll be nibbling at the edges and maybe fixing one or two here and there. So what does the rational individual do in this situation when they find themselves in this kind of incentive structure? Well, I can share what I did. And one thing that uh, you know, is apparent to me as, as somebody who's very performance mindset focused is there's an easy way to perform and there's a hard way to perform. But either way, hard work is required as a precondition for success. It is a necessary but insufficient component to success. The challenging thing when people work at large companies or in some capacity are dependent on large organizations that don't care about them and actively seek to screw them over is eventually they will learn some degree of learned helplessness. Why would I work hard? I'm not going to get promoted for three years anyway, right? Why would I work hard? My bonus is only going to be 20% of my salary, even though I'm producing three times as much as the next guy. So you learn to to throttle your own effort because your environment isn't rewarding it. That will lead to burnout. And I knew this when I was working at Google because they structure their incentives the same way, slow and low, slow growth, low growth, because it's cheaper. And so what I made sure to do when I was at Google is train hard, not just to be good looking so I could talk my way into other jobs, but also to maintain the relationship in my mind between input and output. Training has one of the most consistent relationships between input and output of anything that you do in life. And so I told myself, 
even if I'm not advancing at the rate that I want to be advancing professionally, if I don't apply this angst and this desire for achievement towards something that can yield some degree of uh, emotional benefit to me, I'll lose it. Use it or lose it. So I applied that excess effort towards building my body, getting stronger, getting faster. And I did get stronger and I did get faster in the process. I also learned a lot about how other people can do it. Um, but I would encourage people to maintain their hobbies and maintain com competition. You need to train yourself to compete and win because even if your proximal environment doesn't require it today, your environment in three years might, and you want to be ready for that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And uh, one of the things I really liked that you said there was that you were doing it to maintain this uh, solid feedback loop. Yes. I think especially if you are a knowledge worker or you're working in some sort of field where you're not getting concrete feedback about the actual job that you're doing and whether or not it's effective, uh, what, what can happen is you can basically uh, attenuate yourself to a kind of social feedback where the, the way in which you're measuring yourself isn't against some sort of concrete reality that's unchanging unless you actually do the right thing. It's actually a sort of social reality. So it's another layer up which can lead to all sorts of distortions about mm -hmm. how you're actually doing. And so one of the benefits, at least for me, especially because I'm coming more from a philosophical background uh, of training, is that this is an activity that I can do on a regular basis where I'm uh, tasked with overcoming resistance in the concrete world mm -hmm. and no amount of social maneuvering or manipulation or you know, uh, pandering on my part is going to change whether or not I can lift that weight. Yes, exactly. And, uh, and so if you can, if you're working in a field like that already, maybe you're a mechanic, maybe you do construction, maybe you're in a field already where there's that automatic feedback of either you did it right or you did it wrong. But for a lot of us, especially in advanced economies, that isn't the case in, right. in your daily life. And so you really have to figure out uh, how you can do uh, <clears throat> what, what, what scientists would call reality testing uh, yes. against, against the concrete uh, outside that isn't influenced by social forces. No, I think that's not only true, but I think we can build upon that and talk through, uh, you know, some of the conspiracy theories that have become more popular uh, over the last 20 years. And I think that there's a couple different reasons for that, one of which is related to what you just touched on. So as institutions get bigger, the tangible component of what people are evaluated on gets smaller as a percentage of how they're, how they're evaluated. If you just think about how performance reviews work at large companies, you get like eight people to review your work or something and how much they like you is very important, right? How much they hate you is very important. Um, in most industries, the highest performing people are, have a higher percentage of people who dislike them. So the, the larger the structure gets, the more passive aggressive it will tilt towards because the, uh, the likelihood of a negative review um, coming someone's way is much higher than the likelihood of a positive review if they have the attributes of someone who's very focused on performance first rather than being liked first. So the people who end up getting promoted through these environments tend to lack um, executional competency, but they, instead of that, they have social competency. So they, they can know what to say to the right people. Um, they can be snakes. That's what their environment requires. So a couple of things have happened over the last 20 years as our institutions have become bloated, the superficial component of what people's work is has become a larger component of their daily work and the internet exists. So a lot of people, a couple hundred million Americans are now citizen journalists. Everybody has a camera on the back of their phone. People can write emails, leak internal emails to show the outside what it's really like on the inside of this company or on the inside of this political organization. And so we have two things going on. The, the institutions that we've built a lot of society around are in fact becoming more corrupt. And the technology that we have that allows for internal examination is becoming more precise so that the population can in, understand and internalize this level of corruption in a way they never have before. So naturally, they're going to be more inclined to believe conspiracy theories, whether they're true or whether they're false, because it's obvious to them that what they're being told on a day-to-day -day basis is not true. Yes. Yeah. So when it becomes obvious that you're getting lied to by almost everyone, almost all the time, you would be uh, crazy to not be a little conspiratorial. Yeah. Uh, and that's uh, unfortunately the situation that we're in. 
Uh, and I think it, the part of the, uh, the other problem, of course, is that uh, it takes a gargantuan amount of effort if you're just a normal individual and you're not uh, you know, tuned into any sort of special channels of communication or anything like that to actually make sense of any of this stuff. Uh, and mm-hmm. so that's another thing where some people just aren't going to have, I mean, most people don't have the time or the energy, but in addition to all that, even if they do, they probably don't have the cognitive capacity to even begin to make sense of all of that and the amount. Yeah. Of- the, the tools that you're given in school are a little bit insufficient to, to make sense of um, all of these, let's say contradictory observances in the real world. So what people tend to do when they see something that contradicts what they previously learned is they use the tools that they previously learned to assess the thing that contradicts it. But if what you previously learned is inapplicable because it told you that that thing that you're seeing shouldn't exist, then you can't use that tool to understand properly to understand what you're seeing right now. And I think having a, a diverse background, uh, multidisciplinary experience makes it a lot easier to kind of cross-examine situations that uh, I haven't seen before because I actually have seen it in some capacity in some other area of life. I just haven't seen it exactly play out this way this time, but it allows me to see patterns that other people can't see just based on a broader life experience. Yeah. I think uh, Scott Adams has a, a word he uses called the skill stack, uh-huh. which is basically you stack up, you know, three to five core competencies that you have and you use those to interpret the world in a particular way that others uh, can't do. And, and the way that he talks about it, he talks about it in terms of, you know, gaining success or gaining recognition in that maybe you're not going to be the top 1% uh, in his case of, uh, of comic writers, right? But if you can be the sort of the top 5% of one thing and the top 5% of another yeah. thing and the top 5% of an, another thing, well, those three things in combination now make you a super rare thing. And so now you have uh, a unique skill stack, as he calls it, uh, that you can leverage in a particular way that almost no one else in the world, just by the sheer com- combinatorics of that, uh, could yeah. possibly do. And what's interesting is that wasn't really taught to that many people growing up because growing up pre-internet, people followed conventional career paths. So if you wanted to be successful, you're going to be a doctor, you're going to be a lawyer, you're going to be a banker, you're going to work in private equity. There's only a few different paths and those paths are kind of controlled by a cartel. Um, So what you need to do to get into any of those careers is just do the same thing as the next guy, but better. There isn't the skill st- the the skill stack component of getting into medical school. I mean, there kind of is like they do value extracurricular experience, but at the same time, you need to take an MCAT. You need to you know take your biochemistry and, and organic uh, organic chemistry or whatever whatever it is that you need to take. You need to take that too. Um, and so the what the internet has done is it's opened up the playing field for people with unique value propositions. They always had an opportunity to exist. Now there's just more of them because you can get that unique selling point across to more people uh, with less effort now than ever before and continually less effort, I think, in the future. And so the benefit of pursuing a um, a monopoly type business, which is what you're doing when you're creating a a multifactorial skill set, is just much more rewarded now than it was 20 years ago. And it's much more sensible for people to approach their careers this way. But if they've been taught a playbook that was relevant in the lifetime of the, pe- the people who taught it to them, they might not quite understand that. It won't be as intuitive for them. Yeah. And the other thing, too, that's interesting about it is it's sort of uh, it's not entirely anti-specialization. Uh, it's, it's not saying that you need to go out there and be the most generalist person of all time. But mm-hmm. sort of if you can go deep in a few key areas yeah. and then go broad everywhere else. Uh, that seems to be sort of the sweet spot. Yeah, um, that's what the market will pay for, sure. I, I wanted to ask you then, uh, this is a good place to transition into your uh, your business. Mm-hmm. So when you were starting out uh, and you made, you decided to make the transition from the corporate world into working for yourself, was that something that happened overnight? Did you, uh, did you plan it out and sort of uh, have an exit strategy? Was there already existing demand and you just decided, okay, I'm going to fulfill this? People have been asking me to do something. Uh, how did you go about doing that? So I did them both at the same time. I had a corporate job from um, August 2018 through May, uh, April of this year. And 
in that time, I created the Twitter account that you're following, um, February of 2019. So about, uh, I said, I guess I'm in June of 2018. So I, so it was about eight months into my new job. I was like, I'm going to create a Twitter account and, you know, focus on building what I'm doing for fitness. And I'm going to take it seriously because I think I have a lot to offer. And I know it's not going to be rewarding for the first several months because I have no followers, but I'm going to just keep producing content. And I know that my content's better than other people's. So I'll get some sort of, you know, positive response from it. it took me about six months to go to about a thousand followers. And uh, I'm like, okay, that's good. Once I get to, I told myself like, once I get to a uh, thousand followers, uh, I'll create an email list. And then once I get my email list to a thousand subs, then I'll launch my first product. So I kind of just had these like goals in mind. Well, turns out, you know, I got from 1000 followers to 5,000 followers in like two months. And all these people were saying, well, did you have a website? No, I didn't. Do you like, where can I read more of your content? I want to learn more about this diet framework that you're, that you're using. I thought, oh, that's actually good reason to launch a product. I don't need to wait for some arbitrary amount of subscribers to my email list. The people are asking me all the time, where can they get their hands on my products? So I sat down and I wrote out my diet framework, exactly how I think through it, which is simple. But, and so I don't create, I'm not creating hundred page eBooks. You don't need a hundred page eBook. People falsely equate quantity with value. Nobody's going to take actionable advice on a hundred page diet eBook. So I wrote it out as like 12, 15 pages, whatever. It said everything that I wanted it to say. And I approached it the way I would approach a product launch at Google. I had my affiliates lined up. I had a launch schedule. I had all these, you know, going back and forth with the editors, making sure we're meeting these launch schedules, not pre-informing my audience, all the stuff that I would do for a regular product launch. But I also thought I'd only make like a few hundred bucks off of it because I know how hard it is to sell things online. I just figured, no, it's cool. I just want to get this content out there. I'll let people buy it if they want it, but I'm not planning on this being anything substantive. Well, my first day I sold like $900 worth of the book. I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then the first week, you know, I didn't sell $900 every day, obviously, but like the first week I sold a few thousand dollars maybe. Oh, that's interesting. I bet I could sell $15,000 in this book. And then, you know, a couple months later, people were like, where are your recipes? Where are your recipes? Well, I put out a recipe book. What do you do for training? Put out a training book. Didn't launch it for a while because gyms were closed at the time. But then um, by June, July of last year, I kind of decided that nothing was going to open back up at, in the time frame that I had thought it would. So I'm just going to travel the country and work my crypto job as well as what I, what, what I was doing from a fitness standpoint from wherever I wanted. And uh, I ended up spending a lot of time in Indianapolis with Zach Homo and his wife, Ashley. Um, and you know, just hanging out, sharing my philosophies on life and on dieting and nutrition. They loved it. They started cooking the way I cooked, even though they never wanted to and never intended to in the first place. They just saw how easy it was. And then they kept boosting my profile uh, online because they saw value in what I was doing. And so by July of 2020, my, um, my product sales were accounting for about $8,000, $9,000 of revenue, very low costs. And um, I thought, oh, that's interesting. That's a decent number. Let me see if I can do it again. In August, I did it again. September, I did like 10,000. Okay, well, that's one quarter. Let me see if I can do it another quarter. Q4, I did the same. Q1, I did a little bit better. And so by the time you know Q2 rolls around, I'm doing 12, 13,000 a month. Like, well, my crypto portfolio did well. I'm like, okay, it's, I, I can use my W2 to buy a house and I'm, I'm okay. Like I can, I can live off of what I'm making. Um, and if things take a dip, like I can obviously get a job at, at some point if I want to provide, I don't cancel myself online anytime soon. <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, I just kind of figured now's the time I'm ready. I don't need a corporate job. Yeah. And uh, so since you've become freshly independent, do you feel freer? Absolutely. I don't know how I could have done any of the things that I've done over the last three months with a job. Right. I'm spending, I've a you know, shoulder issue that I've had for 15 years that I'm spending a lot of time on fixing because I don't want it to get worse and compromise other parts of my body. I'm going through a house remodel right now. I live by myself. No, you know, no wife, no kids. And it's just like the amount of things that I need to do that are not work is like six hours a day. So I don't, I have no idea how I would like live life if I had to work for somebody else for even 40 hours a week. 
and a lot of white collar jobs for more than 40 hours a week, but I don't know how I would do it. And so just, you know, being able to live the way I want to live, make money doing things that I find generally enjoyable on my own schedule is phenomenal. Now, you know, do I need to make more money to live the life that I truly want? Yeah. So I have goals and, you know, there's, there's different things that I want to do with my business, but simply just not having to write reports for other people, not having it's, it's, I always felt, even though, you know, when I was working in tech, I was making 200, $250,000 a year. I always felt a little bit emasculated that my, uh, my income was dependent on somebody else giving it to me and one individual giving it to me. I just felt like I wasn't a complete adult if I wasn't able to source my own income from the outside world. And so, um, yeah, I feel like this is a good transition into being a full adult is making my own money. Even if it's less than, uh, than what I was making as a, as an employee, I feel like it's mine. I have ownership of it. Yeah. And, uh, that's, uh, I think that's a key thing to keep in mind when we think about what it means to be a free people, uh, particularly here in the United States, you know, the entire notion of, uh, of, uh, of the post-war middle class was actually built on the fact, and not only were there good, you know, good factory jobs and good manufacturing jobs and whatnot, but also there was a large spirit of independent industry, of entrepreneurship, of small family businesses that were sort of the backbone of civil society. And one of the consequences of the consolidation that's taken place under COVID by large companies is that so many small businesses and family-owned companies have had to shut down. And it's not simply that those people have a loss of income and it's tragic that their business died. Uh, and it's not good that they have to probably go find jobs now. Uh, but it's also that there's a whole degree of freedom uh, that that class of society has that has now disappeared. And so it's going to be even harder for now for Americans in mass to resist any kind of tyrannical overreach because of the fact that so many of us are dependent on large employers uh, who basically view you impersonally as kind of a number. Uh, and you don't have those deep uh, communal and family ties uh, and small businesses that run independently of that. It also shifts the cognition of the general population because when you shift, you know, if you think about uh, a small business friendly environment where say 80% of the population works at a small business, 20% of the population works at large companies. Small, the smaller the business, like we talked about earlier, require, requires you to understand concrete things. The larger the business, the more your brain is going to focus on superficial things like being well liked by other people. And that's going to, be, that's going to take precedence over actual, actual execution. So as more people shift from being, uh, being uh, one member of a small group to one cog in a large machine, um, what they focus on will shift away from the tangible towards the superficial. And as their minds get away from the tangible and towards the superficial, they will become less adept at recognizing when people are tangibly screwing them over because they're not in an environment where they're seeing the patterns of this. And I think, you know, one of the reasons why you talk to people who are older and very commonly they're, they're more informed uh, relative to their level of education than someone with a similar level of education today is a lot of them spent time doing uh, summer jobs or some sort of jobs at small companies or their family companies that requires you to interact with customers face-to-face, -face, count the change, understand pricing, understand discounts, sales, uh, product turnover, suppliers, like learning that stuff will result in you understanding many other things about the world. Where if you switch uh, that kind of cross-domain requirement that exists at small companies, to uh, a more standardized um, assembly line type requirement that is uh, favored at larger companies, you will literally lose the cognitive ability to, to understand what's going on around you um, and multiply that times the 30 million people who have to do it. Well, now they're lost and they're part of the matrix. Yeah, definitely. And of course, every part of that chain then becomes sort of opaque to you. You're not really yeah. sure where your orders are coming from, yes. where... Uh, you know, why certain initiatives are happening and there's compartmentalization. So these things are not expected to be explained to you. Correct. Uh, even if they were, you don't really have any agency in them. So right. 
uh, all, and, and again, you're getting back to that uh, point you made earlier, mm -hmm. which is that uh, this cultivates a kind of learned helplessness when you're in mm -hmm. these large organizations, because there's so little that you do have control over. You Correct. end up uh, habituating yourself to just accepting it. Yeah. Um, so I wanted to ask you then a little bit about uh, kind of the future of your business here. Um, do you envision what you're doing right now? I know you said that you're pretty comfortable. Obviously, you're getting some valuable time to work on yourself and work on some personal projects. But do you view the business that you have now as something that will expand out into the future? Uh, are you trying to keep this sort of a business as, of one with some contractors? Uh, how, how do you think about sort of uh, your future growth? Um, yeah, so I think longer term, you know, what I'm, what I'm putting out there, I think is unique now. I don't think it's going to be unique in 10 years. I think what I'm doing is so far ahead of what everyone else is doing. And it's easy to replicate. And there's not necessarily a huge moat I can build around it that I'm going to have to uh, adjust my business model as my audience grows. But the good thing about that is, you know, we live in a world that's awash with bullshit and people screw themselves over simply from making like obvious groceries or maybe not so obvious, but mistakes at the grocery store, mistakes when they're ordering food. And a lot of people come to me and they ask, where are you getting this? How do I get this? How do I get this with that ingredient? How do I make this? And so the longer term play is to, you know, create some form of shopping lists for people to help them, um, you know, basically rely on me as an ingredients curator um, to buy, you know, either individual meals uh, through some sort of cloud delivery service and or groceries. And so I think that's going to end, you know, if I can grow my audience 4X and get, uh, you know, 2% of them uh, spending, you know, giving me like a net $10,000 per month profit. Well, yeah, that's 20,000 a month I can get from just creating access to those products. And then obviously if it's profitable in some capacity, you can run ads by it and then scale that even further, create some sort of application that allows people to um, use my methods, but you know, at a lower price at greater scale. And so those are the things that I'm thinking through right now, but I'm also cognizant of the fact that our environment's changing very quickly and I need to be prepared for the unexpected. And you know, so I'm always keeping a lot of channels open. It's almost like I'm a military operator, like constantly monitoring, well, what if this happens? What if that happens? Even if that doesn't happen, I need to do this. If this goes well, I still need to do that. So that's sort of how I'm thinking about it. Yeah, definitely. Uh, maintaining that adaptability is uh, super important. Um, I wanted to ask you uh, a few more questions and then uh, sure. we will wrap it up here. Uh, one of which is, do you think about, uh, you know, with regard to your fitness, I don't know if you work out alone or if you uh, usually, uh, if you have any like, you know, particular partners, it sounds like you travel a lot. Mm -hmm. So I would assume when you're doing that, uh, you're mostly by yourself. Uh, that being said, uh, you mentioned that you met with Zach Harmel. Mm -hmm. uh, have you thought much about like community building or trying to sort of, uh, you know, beyond beyond the products, uh, trying to sort of uh, match a kind of ethos and a kind of lifestyle uh, yeah. and a set of cultural values with these activities that you're doing? Because one of the things that I think a lot of people are um, in, I don't know, let's say more dissident political spheres are thinking about lately is how can we start to come together and form communities around sets of shared values mm -hmm. that will allow us to outlast some of these um, some of these uh, thrashings that are going on, uh, you know, both by the state but also by large corporations? If you could have these interconnected webs of you know business owners, people who are doing interesting creative work, etc., but who are also sort of have uh, cultivating these close ties with one another, um, that can be a basin of uh of support and of power even uh that can help at least alleviate some of the pressure from these outside forces yeah i haven't thought about it so much as like a military defense strategy which it seems like you're kind of somewhat getting close to i've more thought of it like i have mindset approaches and fitness approaches that a lot of people would benefit from and i can teach i can teach more people at a greater capacity than a university can so I'm going to create my own classes that teach people my fitness frameworks, that teach people my cognitive frameworks. And so on the 23rd of, uh, of August, I'll have my first class that kind of combines what I'm doing with fitness and also what I do with how I think. So we're calling it the Hercules Socrates Club. Um, and that's going to be, you know, ideally that's going to be a community 
that will include a lot of the features that you're talking about, but that's not the primary intent of creating the community. The primary intent is there's a lot easier ways to navigate the world that I figured out. I'll teach them to you. Mm-hmm. Yeah, definitely. And uh, I agree with that. And uh, I, I just say that, you know, having strong people is how you get independent minded people. If they're not yes. strong if physically, financially, all of that other stuff, then they, it's going to be hard for them to actually do any kind of free thought because. Oh, totally. And you, you, you think about the average American that they would write about five years ago. I don't know how true it is, but the most commonly circulated data says like 50% of Americans couldn't come up with $400 to cover an emergency without selling something. Okay, well, what's the last 18 months been for them? Like they, they've been brought to their knees. They're basically addicted to government stimulus because they can't work uh, and they have no savings. So they become vessels of the state. And, you know, that's one thing that if you're going to maintain your freedom in a capitalist system, you need capital. If you don't have capital, you're a slave to somebody else. And so, you know, the mindset that I take to fitness, the mindset that I take to intellectual development um, doesn't require that you become, you know, a billionaire, but it does require that you you put focus on building your net worth because without it, you're going to be a slave. Yes. And uh, I think that's a good, good point to, uh, to leave off and cool. give our listeners uh, some, uh, some juicy things to think about. With that being said, Alex, uh, thank you so much for coming on. I appreciate yeah. you giving us your time today. Yeah. Uh, before I let you go, just uh, let the people know where can they find you? Where can they learn more about your work? Uh, follow me on Twitter. It's probably the easiest way you can get access to my brain and uh, cooking. You can also follow me on Instagram. The handle's the same, but I don't uh, I don't get into deep you know thinking threads on Instagram because that's not really what the platform's designed for. Alex Feinberg one, um, F E I N B E R G one. That's where you can do it. My DMs are open on both platforms. Hit me up if you have questions. Uh, we'd love to share more knowledge with you when you're uh, when you're ready. Cool. Thanks. Yeah. You bet. <laughs>